Hello, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, the resilient podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is Stratton Meyer. Stratton Meyer is a person who is from Australia, and he lives now in the U.S. And for those of you who have heard my podcast, you'll know that I like to talk to people who are from overseas and live here or that are from America and live overseas. And the reason why is I want to talk to people who can better objectify my country and to tell me some of what they think is happening over here, at least from their outsider perspective. And we had a very interesting conversation. And anyway... As always, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Kitchings. Welcome to the History Voyager. I'm here with Stratton Meyer, and he is an expat from New Zealand or Australia? Originally from Australia, yeah. Um, I don't really sound it, though. My dad was English. No, you don't, and you sound very <laughs> genteel. Uh, well, very genteel. And we were going to talk about, as some of you know, I, I love to talk to foreigners in, in America about their impressions of America, and also, I believe you have a background in archive, in archival work, and yeah, that's right. Huh? Uh-huh. So tell me, um, how did you? Um, before you came to America, how long have you lived in America altogether? Altogether, hmm. I've lived in America a couple of different times in my life. Um, so altogether, I've probably lived here for about 15 years, but it's spread out over the course of my, my whole uh, life. So it's it's been a couple of shorter stints. Okay. How long was the longest time? Mm, the longest must have been about seven years. Okay, okay. And I'm, I'm assuming you were a child for part of that. Yeah, that's right. That was, the, that was actually the longest period, was I was here, um, actually here in Houston, coincidentally, uh, from the ages of about... Uh, five to I guess twelve or thirteen before we moved back to Australia. Mm. So I don't think it would be fair to ask you what the difference between America now and America then was because you were a child. It uh yeah my impressions of America are definitely colored <laughs> by my nostalgia I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. That was my last episode, by the way. Nostalgia, my most recent one. Ah, yeah. All right. So, what? Do you, so, when you came to America, I'm assuming you you came for work. This most recent time, yeah. So, I was living in the UK um, on a a work visa there, but my visa expired and my job wasn't able to keep me. 
um, the salary requirements had just gone up and they weren't able to meet them for me to continue working in the, the UK on a new work visa. So I moved back to the United States. Uh, my mother is American, so I have citizenship, very luckily, and managed to find a job here in a uh, um, museum. So I'm a museum archivist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, what, <clears throat> to use the Martian uh, uh, pretend I know what America is, but I, I've never lived here. Um, how would you describe the United States to an Australian who's obviously heard of America, but has never lived here? Yeah, I think um, the fascinating thing about that question is that depending upon if you're a Martian or if you're an Australian, the answer has to be very different because America looms so large in pop culture throughout the world that people um, from Australia and and from anywhere else have a perception of America, even if it isn't the the correct one. So my answer would either be dispelling a bunch of myths or stating stating my first opinions. Um, but I guess the things that I want to get across more than anything are that America is a country that is full of uh, belief in itself and its people coming off of a, a century of dominance in the global sphere that has sort of led to um, an understanding of its populace that they are and should remain players on the world stage um, that I think has led to a little bit of complacency um, in terms of the way in which they interact with other countries and with their own citizens. Yeah, or even like the way the way we think of the way as an American, the way before, like before COVID, for example, um, I had kind of thought that, you know, eventually, you know, people will come around, they'll take this seriously, you know, um, and for a little while, I, I even thought that the government would, would actually smarten up and basically subsidize people, you know, all of us, business owners, et cetera to basically stay and shelter in place for a long time or whatever. But then I kind of gradually realized that wasn't going to happen. And I don't remember, there wasn't like an aha moment. There wasn't like, oh, sort of like a gradual thing. Mm. But the shock to me is how we're not rising to a challenge. You know? I think America has, and Americans have a um, a tendency towards individualism, uh, and that often means that people become very entrenched in their own beliefs. And I think we've really seen that that pot boil over in this uh-huh. crisis, where people are so unwilling to listen to the advice of other people and think that they know best um, 
that uh-huh. it's caused or exacerbated this uh, this global pandemic in a way that is um, darkly fascinating as we sort of look at the way in which other mm-hmm. countries have responded. Like Australia has done uh, citywide and statewide shutdowns of its um, areas as COVID cases have been rising and falling. Um, to attempt to contain it. And I don't think they've done a brilliant job of that. It's been too slow. It's it's not worked always. But just that example of the willingness of a government to say, okay, we're going to stop. Uh, two weeks time out until you can all figure yourselves out and we can get this thing back under control. Uh, living in Texas, seeing the way that the Texas government <laughs> has dealt with that, is an entirely different beast um and i think speaks to that sort of that rugged exceptionalism that it looms so large in america's public okay. consciousness now i i i'm not i'm not you know daft enough to think that you've heard any of my podcasts beyond maybe the one episode that i guess that we do we call her your girlfriend or do we? Yes. We, yeah, she's my girlfriend. Okay. So the one episode that I did with her, but I have listeners all over the world. So why don't you tell us from a, a worm's eye view what it's like to live in Texas with COVID? <laughs> well, as far as the government is concerned, COVID ended some time ago, which is great. And we can all go back to normal. Um, but unfortunately, the reality of the situation is very much not that. So Texas is this weird microcosm where oh, I live in Houston, which is a, a large metropolitan city with um, a lot of strong democratic leadership. And again, not necessarily perfect, but very different from the, the Republican <laughs> leadership at the state level. And so seeing this massive push-pull of um, the state government says mask mandates are no longer going to be a thing. And the local government says, no, no, absolutely not. That's not happening. We're going to push back. There will be lawsuits to prevent the state government from doing this. Uh, We're seeing private businesses really hurting because of COVID, willing to open up their doors again and the way in which that interacts with the mask mandates has been fascinating a lot of workplaces are now now we're seeing the same struggle with the vaccine that we were with the mask mandates uh, who can Mm -hmm. um dictate to their employees that they need to be vaccinated need not to be vaccinated and so there's this total lack of guidance and um and any sort of uh, oversight uh, and like a blanket plan from the government where these various cities and even down to the level of individual businesses or organizations are having to sort of scramble to figure out what they're comfortable with, what they can do to stay in business and to keep their people safe. So it's really every person for themselves. And what's so bizarre about this i guess oh yeah so sorry go ahead what's so bizarre i'm sorry is that like when you have a kid like 
so before COVID, in the what I glibly call the before time, right? So if you had a kid and you turned up at a public school, you know, even in anywhere, any, literally anywhere, you know, they would want some sort of, they would either want you to have a vaccination record or they would want you to, the child either needs to be allergic to the vaccine or you need to have a religious exemption or it needs to be verified or something. You know, mm. I mean, and this was completely across the board. I mean, you know, totally across the board. That's what's that, so that, shocking. That's a really excellent point. I, I am not a parent. And so the, the situation with schools has sort of been one thing that I have been um, not burdened with, but you're totally right that the, the way the schools have, again, been handling this on an individual case-by-case -case basis is just wild. It, it, uh, yeah. Totally unforeseeable. Uh, well, it, it's not unforeseeable once you realize that it's not going away. Mm. You know, because you know what I mean? It's like, once you realize this is part of the deal, <laughs> you know, and, and then you start thinking about, I'm not in college anymore, but to live in a college dorm, you have to be vaccinated against pretty much a lot, you know, lots of stuff. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, and all this, that's what's so odd, is all this is new. Like, all this, the whole attitude about this is so new. You know? Yes. Yeah. It's I think so we've strange. seen a little bit of this, a little taste in the way that people have reacted over the last couple of years to the flu vaccine and all of this nonsense about mercury in the vaccines or vaccines causing autism that has sort of been bubbling under the surface for a while but this is just a whole nother level and and totally exposes um all of the yeah. the creepy crawlies under the rock you know when you pick up a rock and you see all of the grubs and worms living under there we have now we can't turn that rock back over and unsee what we've seen how did so I'm an American that's the thing I the question I keep having is why are we the only country that deals with this <laughs> why what's so why why are we the only country that deals with it it's a good question and I think there's no easy answer unfortunately I think that from my perspective, there is a deep mm, distrust of government in the United States, either from the left because they see the politicians on the right uh, cramming lifetime appointed judges through passing regressive policies that violate bodily autonomy of people. Uh, be unwilling to recognize basic human rights or people on the right who see these leftist politicians promoting what they believe to be outright communism and trying to dictate the way in which they live their lives and suppressing their religious freedoms. And so everyone sees 
politicians as the enemy, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, it's like lawyers, right? Everyone thinks that all lawyers are evil. Everyone thinks in the America that all politicians are scumbags. And so the, I think it's the perfect recipe for this situation yeah. that we found ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe. I mean, one of the problems or one of the issues with American conservatism is that it's philosophically opposed to newness, mm -hmm. to new things. And here's a new disease. So you have a new disease, and anybody who learns about it, I mean, this is a function of global warming, right? This is a, a, a function of global warming. So right there, they don't think global warming is real. So, yeah. I don't know. Just thinking. Yeah. I, there, there's so much that unfortunately is broken about the conservative mindset in the way that they are willing to disregard and actively fight against anyone being an expert in anything. And so we see science denialism, we see uh, a fundamental mistrust of the education system uh, that is just a, creating a breeding ground for these pseudoscientific ideas and, and backwards concepts to, to spread like wildfire because people believe their uncle or their aunt or, or whoever it is that's on WhatsApp or Facebook over uh, and a, a vetted expert source. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And it's shocking to me that seemingly, I mean, I, I said nobody, no other country deals with it. I mean, Brazil deals with it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there was you actually don't a, have... good, uh, a good piece on um, uh, John Oliver's show this last weekend about misinformation, and he was talking about how it is rampant in uh, South Asian communities as well, the, this sort of getting your information mm. through WhatsApp and, and Facebook. Um, his mm. show is last mm. week tonight. Mm. That would make sense because, um, like, I tried to have a podcast with a, with a PhD in Hong Kong. Right. And we were just going to talk about hunting, like big game hunting. Oh. Yeah, we weren't even and we, we laid out all these ground rules about, OK, nobody has to know where you live. We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> you know, I just want to talk to you about big game hunting. Right. Literally within five minutes, he was having what you could only call like profound stage fright because like the government he was terrified the government would somebody would see it or hear it you know and how awful yeah yeah and i used to be on the radio in singapore like every week and she said the dj said that like whatsapp etc is like actually a huge news source there mm. like big 
and yeah, yeah. So anyway, so you're you're um. So what would you? How would you describe Houston, like the city of Houston, to somebody? Oh, great question. I think that the city of Houston is a really wonderful melting pot. It is one of the most multicultural cities I've ever lived in, which has been fantastic. Um, It is also one of the least people-friendly cities I've ever lived in. There's very little public transportation. It's sweltering... 90 plus degrees for six months of the year so you can't walk anywhere um everything has to sort of be air conditioned bubbles from the car to the building um and so it's this this weird mix of you really want to go out and see everything that the city has to offer it's a great cultural hub wonderful museums and operas and music venues but you also don't you want to stay in your home because it's too hot to go anywhere uh it's a it's an odd duck of a city yeah yeah um do you think that plays into anything the the over-reliance on air though i guess the reliance on air conditioning and the the bubbles do you think that plays into anything politically and socially or or Am I just barking up the wrong tree there? No, I think that's a really, that's an interesting point and one that I hadn't really considered before that it makes it so much easier to remain in close proximity to the the people that you already know if you're not out exploring new places and seeing new things. And I I suspect that there may be an element of truth to that. there are a lot of religious people in the city, and so they're all going to church every week where they are in air-conditioned comfort. And that might be their outing for the week uh, and not be going other places and meeting other people. Um, so I, I can't speak to that from my own experience, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were onto something. Yeah, I mean, this is actually... I mean, political scientists much more decorated than yours truly have written entire forests of books on that. And I don't know if I believe all of it. I mean, I I think it has a, it's a way to make a stew, but, you know, for sure, it's a way to simmer on things. Mm. Because you're right, you're not, you're not unintentionally meeting people, or it's harder to do that. It's a lot harder to to unintentionally do that. There's not what's the word a cafe culture. There's probably not a cafe culture there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yet and still, you have NASA there. You have what else do you have? Like, there's more. There, for a long time, there was more PhDs there than anywhere else in the world per capita. Oh, wow. I think it's got one of the best hospital systems as well. The MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center is is world class. Yeah, it is. It's a world class cancer hospital. It's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so 
Mm. So you, you think the, the stewing and like all that, but you just said, you know, Houston is liberal or Houston's more democratic. So you think the, the heat probably plays more into the, I guess the uh, overall mixing or the overall kind of keeping everybody separated. I, I think that it doesn't help. And I, um, the one thing that I worry with conversations like this is that we become too reductivist looking for the thing that might be the, the key that unlocks the mystery. I think that a lot of it may be that yeah. large urban centers are often more uh, democratic leaning than Republican leaning. That is just a yeah. uh, part of the nature of the beast. Um, and I don't know whether the climate of Houston and the way in which people live their lives plays as big a role in that as we have sort of been discussing. I mean, it's always possible, but um, I suspect that there are so many little interconnected systems that all make up the reasoning for, for things like yeah. that. But it's impossible to go into or, or really even know it all with certainty. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about um, your museum background, uh, your your archival background. Um, you work in an art museum, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I work at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Houston, Texas. Uh, I am part of their two person archives team, myself and our managing archivist. Um, and I've been in this position for just about three years now, but this is actually my first archiving role. Before that, I was in collections management. Hmm. Yeah. What's, what's some of the differences between archiving and collect, collections management? Um, a, a lot of the day-to-day -day work that I do is very similar. It's a lot of um, metadata and allocation, so finding the um, the descriptive information for uh, objects or documents and then making sure that they're properly added to a database or spreadsheet so that they're findable by researchers. Um, it just, the, the main difference is the kind of uh, objects that we work with. So in archives, we're working with documents mostly that we do have some pretty extensive uh, photographic collections as well. Um, whereas in collections management, I was working a lot more with um, with historical and art objects themselves. So the workload is the same, but the the um, uh, the surrounding discipline is is what's different. So in England, uh, you were more dealing with uh, uh, historical stuff. Yeah, I worked at the um, the Imperial War Museum, uh, the Duxford branch of that, which is an uh, an Air Force museum on an old uh, World War II Air Force base, uh, wow. just outside of Cambridge. Um, so I was there for about a year, and then I was working with a small startup company in London called Thermolignum, uh, which is a, a collections care and... Um, uh, like pest eradication for delicate art and cultural <laughs> objects, uh, which is yeah. really fascinating. 
Yeah, what what kind of stuff would uh well were you an active accessioning place there in England or not? Uh so um the work that I was doing at the IWM uh, wasn't really uh, actively accessioning. It was uh, providing accurate description for the objects that were already in our collections. So I was working uh, with the the aircraft and tank collections to provide measurements of all of them, uh, exact dimensions of all the planes and land vehicles that we had in storage so that we knew exactly how much space we needed to adequately store them or to display them. Um, so that's the kind of work that I was really doing. I'm doing a lot more active accessioning in my role here at the Museum of Fine Arts. I would not have thought that. So what kind of stuff walks in the door that you have to accession at a fine uh, art museum? Yeah, most of our records in the archives are um, uh, organizational records, so they come from inside the museum itself, um, usually from other departments like our curatorial department or our accounting department, where they will periodically send us materials from their offices about exhibitions or uh, about the the inner workings of the museum for us to archive and store for posterity. And, and you know what? It, it just occurred to me something. Um, let's do this because this is really a oral history, cleverly disguised as a podcast. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna take a I'm gonna walk out on a thick branch, and and say that something is different about your job pre-pandemic as opposed to now, as far as working from home or. Uh, there was a period last year uh, where I was working from home uh, and the jobs changed significantly because I wasn't able to work with um, with any physical objects at the archives. So I was doing database work. Mm -hmm. um, but now we've been back for about a year now. We got back mid-October last year into the office full time. And now that we're back, it's essentially business as usual. Um, the Museum of Fine Arts was actually the first museum in the United States to reopen after COVID. Uh, and they've wow. been really good about ensuring uh, testing of all of their employees, um, promoting and uh, making available vaccines. So I've gotten both of my vaccines through my work very early on in this year. Um, and we're a small department. So the reality is that I I mentioned there are two of us in the archives. I don't really see anyone else uh, on my day to day. So we're both vaccinated and we maintain good social distance. So work just sort of continues as it did before. It's an uh, a situation that I think is very uncommon uh, for sure nowadays. You mean as far as being back to work or as mm. far as? Yeah, as far as oh, being yeah. uh, being able in, to continue in person, work. back to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also I think I read. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read recently that um, <laughs> it's now illegal to uh, in Texas. It's illegal to have mask mandates, et cetera, in Texas. 
I I believe that is the case. Uh, all of the signs that we see on shops here um, talk about uh, strongly recommended masks. Um, so I think that the the government finally has managed to squash uh, mask mandates here. Uh, sadly. Well. I mean, you know, you can get a um, uh, an N95, you know, mask. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. If um, if you're after it, the supplies have been uh, pretty good about restocking here. We've got good supply lines. I think the mm -hmm. port of Houston is one of the largest in the states so we, we've been very lucky in terms of being able to resupply with all kinds of things and so masks are easy to come by because mm. i remember a period where that wasn't true i mean it's, it's easy now but i remember there was a period that really wasn't true um have you had any i mean are you aware of any like protesting going on outside your museum about wearing masks or or whatever nothing related to the museum um mm. w the museum maintained its own mask mandate for as long as it could uh and mm. I, I think that the the unfortunate reality is that the demographics that might be interested in attending museum are less likely to be those that will be fighting mask mandates yeah. in the first place um yeah. even though i wish that museums were uh, accessible and um commonplace visiting spots for anyone uh, i think that they have managed to appeal more to people who might be uh, less um, averse to wearing masks in the first place yeah i mean I was reading something last night um, about COVID where they, they, I mean, and the research kind of tracks that it's becoming apparent that it's more uh, neurological issues than anybody initially thought. You know, they, they were saying, and what I was reading last night, that it, it's like it's going to be remembered as a neurological disease, the way it's going. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, are you aware of the doctors in Texas, the rural doctors in Texas, uh, treating the disease differently than the doctors in Houston? I'm afraid that um, I'm not really plugged into the... Um, the, the workings of the rural medical system. Uh, I yep. yeah. we talked a little about bubbles earlier, and mine is very urban. I'm afraid, so I yeah. don't know yeah. much about the situation out there as I I might do. I don't know, like you know, things on Facebook, like that. I try or, to avoid Facebook as much as possible now. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Um. Here's a thought. When did that start? Avoiding Facebook. 
It's something that I have been uh, doing more actively for the past maybe three years. Um, but looking I, every now and then I get notifications on my phone because I still have the app and it says your memories are coming up. And I've noticed recently that none of my memories, like my big memory posts, are from anything earlier than about six years ago. So I think that really my usage has dropped off in that last half decade to the point where Facebook is having trouble coming up with interesting things that I've posted in the last <laughs> six years. Let me ask you this. Uh, have you noticed your your friends or colleagues or whoever saying sort of the same thing or, or is it, are you just sort of the, uh, the one Luddite with Facebook? Um, I know that my family use Facebook. Um, the people in my generation are much more on Instagram, I think, than they are on Facebook, but my parents and their generation are, are very much still Facebook users. Um, yeah. In terms of my friend group, I think that it's sort of 50-50. I know a couple of people who are very avid Facebook users and will post regularly uh, long paragraphs, long posts. Um, but others who I, many of whom I am more connected to in real life, um, but only really communicate with through a service like WhatsApp or Discord. And I know by using WhatsApp, I'm not really escaping Facebook anymore, unfortunately. But um, they are less likely to use Facebook or Instagram. Exactly. I, I luckily I avoided the whole Instagram thing totally. So I, I'm not on TikTok and I have never touched Instagram. But um, uh, Facebook still has its claws in me and uh, I'm still on WhatsApp despite my my best intentions. No, the reason I ask is because after the outage the other day, there was a six-hour outage or eight-hour outage. Mm. After the out, after the outage, I mean, you know, I, I kind of wonder if the writing's on the wall with Facebook. You know, people getting off. Yeah, I think that as soon as a uh, viable alternative appears people will be willing to jump ship to it. Um, and I think we saw that with the advent of Facebook in sort of the wake of MySpace, right? Like as soon as people uh, uh, find a good substitute for something that isn't working anymore, they will take it. And I, I don't think it's TikTok because uh, there's not really the opportunity f for the same kind of interaction as there is on Facebook, to my understanding. So I don't know yeah. what the, the next big thing will be, but I think that people are ready to leave Facebook and find something else. I can't. I'm not on TikTok. I've, I've never used it. I can't for the life of me think of a... I mean, I do a podcast about where I talk to people and mm -hmm. I, I, deal, I deal with uh, history stuff and scholarly things. For the life of me, I can't think of a TikTok way to do that. It, I find it very difficult to condense any meaningful topic into a minute or two minutes, uh, which makes TikTok a little 
uninteresting to me as well. I think like things like recipes, great, totally. I'm on board for TikTok recipes, but anything more involved or more um, educational, it's just so hard to really get any good information across. And I mean, there's something we're, we're dancing around here, which is, I mean, you know, we're talking about Facebook like it's some utility or some useful thing that's like intrinsically useful that we can't live without. And the truth is that all social media, you know, you can basically live without it. Most people can basically live without it. You know. Yeah, definitely. Definitely you can. Um, yeah. We have know. just gotten so used to the ease of communication through channels like this that it uh, it requires some thought as to how we would keep in touch without them. And I guess that, that just speaks to the effectiveness of their business model. It's like, what would we do without these things? But you're right, we don't need them. We've lived without them for generations and, and we would continue without them in the yeah. future. Well, the thing, so I, I mean, and I, I've said this before on my podcast, but so the thing is, I always think about, like, how would I, 20 years ago, how would I go back to myself and, you know, hey, man, there's going to be a, a phone or a thing you put in your pocket. It's a, truly a marvel of technology, and you're going to use it to argue with strangers. <laughs> and 20 years ago, I would have said, why? <laughs> very true i don't know so funny so so strange so where do you see um so in australia like so australia is small population wise right Mm -hmm. um does that not lead to independent people there i mean why are people in Australia more trustworthy of the government than people in? Well, a great question. What's, I think. What's the secret? <laughs> I, I think that the the unfortunate answer is that Australia is very much a microcosm in many ways of the United States. Um, it has the benefit of social programs that are useful to the people to the point where they are are more willing to trust the government like australia still has socialized healthcare and um welfare systems that sort of work their unemployment system is uh, broken almost beyond recognition but apart from that it sort of works as a system and so i think it's the ability for those systems to keep running that keeps people invested in the success of the government. But we've seen in the last uh, few decades the same things that we have here in the United States, where there is a rise of conservative governments um, and their stronghold on political life, uh, many of the same talking points that we're seeing here. And I know that many companies uh, use Australia as like a test pool when they're going to be putting products or services into the market in the United States. They'll test launch it in Australia first and see how it does. Ah, And ah, then ah. 
if it goes well, then they'll go ahead and, and toss it in the into the deep end with the United States. So unfortunately, what, what you, the answer what, is... What do you mean? Uh, so I, I think that the answer that the um, example that comes to mind most easily is um, McCafe, the McDonald's like coffee. Oh. They were launched first in Australia <laughs> and were super popular. Australia has a, a really burgeoning coffee culture. And so if you go to a McCafe in Australia, it's really good coffee <laughs> and you go there for the coffee. Uh, and maybe like a breakfast sandwich or something, as opposed to going necessarily as an adult for a meal. Uh, and so they said, okay, yeah, this works. And they introduced it into the United States afterwards. So uh, it's that sort of thing where they're just looking to see whether a, a, a concept has a market. And for some reason, I mean, Australia is the same size physically the continental US but could do a smaller population wise yeah significantly I think Australia has mm, when I last looked at the figures which was years ago it was 23 million so I think it's probably more like 25 million people but the US is something crazy like nearly 400 million right 300 and something 350 I think million so yeah quite a few people Mm. <laughs> Quite a few. I think Florida is bigger than population-wise than Australia. <laughs> which is insane. That's just insane. Um. Huh. So, would you tell somebody from Australia to move here or not? I mean, real quick. I think that. I think that the answer to that is probably yes, but it's very dependent upon where they're thinking of moving and what they already do for work, because there is a lot more competition here in the States, but there's also a lot more infrastructure and opportunity for high level work. Um, if we're talking in terms of social issues and that is the main consideration for someone, then my answer would be different. It would probably be, mm, now is not the time, uh, stay where you are. But if it's someone who is looking for a, a new start and a new life, then I think that there is still a lot of opportunity here in the United States. Uh, despite everything that you, all of the hoops that you have to jump through in order to to live a life here in the first place. What are the hoops that you have to jump through? Uh, well, in terms of there are uh, our immigration concerns, of course, um, finding work visas and green cards, uh, something that my my parents had to go through when they moved to the states. Um, but those can be aided or uh, made easier by employers who are willing to play ball. I know that a lot of people in the oil and gas industry, uh, despite what they are doing to our planet, 
are able to move to the US because of lucrative contracts and, and good relations between those companies and the government. Um, so that is a, a major hoop that someone has to jump through in order to, to move to the US. Uh, I think that another one is is choosing a place to land, right? I, I have ended up in Houston through circumstance and prior experience because I lived here as a kid. But if you're not as savvy about US geography and the demographics, if you say, okay, I'm going to go and live in rural Kentucky, you might have a very different experience than if you were to live in uh, rural Vermont, for example, like similar levels of um, economy, perhaps, but just a very different lived experience. And that kind of thing is important to know. Well, I wonder, because, you know, rural Vermont is real close to Boston. I mean, so I wonder how similar rural Vermont would be to somewhere like rural Kentucky or something like that. Well, uh, I I suspect that you know better than I do. I was pulling examples out of my hat. Uh, So I, I... Urge anyone <laughs> before moving to rural Vermont, please do your research. <laughs> yeah, you really have to. I always tell people, um, I always tell other podcasters, always assume that the stage you have is big because they don't even, nobody, I mean, it's really hard to deduce how big your stage is mm. as a podcaster. But, Anyway, yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, how do you think we are going to get, or do, okay, do you think we're going to get through COVID? That's that's a fair question these days. Uh. Uh, oh, boy. I think that the answer is no. I don't think we're going to get through COVID. I don't think there's going to be a time where we are truly post-COVID. But I think that it will become a seasonal concern like the flu is. Um, everyone sort of dismisses the flu, but it does kill something like 10,000 people a year, um, which is not nothing. And we're going to see COVID recur and continue to mutate just as the flu does seasonally. And those who are willing to get vaccinated will get vaccinated. And those who aren't won't. And I don't know what that world is going to look like, but I don't think we're going to beat this disease. Mm. Do you think the world, I mean, so you, but do you think other developed countries will beat the disease and we won't, or? Well, I look at places like uh, South Korea that did a really wonderful job early in the pandemic of drive-through testing and, um, pretty extensive lockdowns, and they got a good handle on the disease early on. And I think mm-hmm. that it depends very much on a country-to-country basis, and a continued vigilance of those nations for what their borders look like and what testing continues to look like. So I, I worry that we're seeing 
and I'm sort of living through this in Texas, we're seeing a level of complacency about COVID uh, here in yeah. the US. And I, I suspect in other nations as well, though I can't speak to their lived experiences. Um, that makes me worry that we're going to see these restrictions continue to get laxer and laxer, even if mm. the threat doesn't become lesser and lesser. Doesn't go away. Even if the threat doesn't go away. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I get that. I, you know, I remember when I thought that we could get past this. But I, I think you're right. Um, I don't think it'll be seasonal. But I think it'll be one of those things like cancer or something like that. that just mm -hmm. one of the, you know. You know, but who knows? I mean. You know, cholera is basically unknown in this country these days. You know, cholera used to be a serious problem in this country. You know, yeah. ages ages ago, it was a serious problem. So, hopefully, but uh, Stratton, um, did you have anything you wanted to tell the internet? Uh, gosh, that is a, a big audience. Uh, Hello, Internet. Um, my name is Stratton Meyer. I have a YouTube series called uh, Soft Stories, which is currently on hiatus, but I would be honored if you would check it out. Um, uh, it was oh, mentioned earlier that my I lovely girlfriend... I forgot to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, no worries. <laughs> your YouTube uh, channel. Sorry? Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask you about that, your YouTube stuff. I, I forgot. No worries at all. Um, it, as I say, it's on hiatus now, so it, it isn't uh, forefront of my mind, but I'd like to bring it back soon um, yeah. in whatever form that takes. So what is it? Soft Stories. Uh, soft Stories is a um, soft-spoken, ASMR-adjacent uh, storytelling channel where I present old works of fiction, um, philosophy and other literature uh, as a sort of method of relaxation, um, particularly maybe as there's a lot going on in the world right now uh, and we need a moment to escape and to just um, relax, relax, go with the flow for a moment and, and to, I think that there is a lot of wonderful uh, literature out there that is more and more outside of the common discourse. And I mean, we all had to read The Great Gatsby in school and occasionally a Dickens or Shakespeare or something like that. But there is so much else out there. Um, and I've been honored to share a couple of children's books from when I was a kid in Australia that people may not have known. So if you're looking for something to relax you, maybe help you sleep, uh, and just to have the experience of just being with me in a room and having a bedtime story, um, Soft Stories is the channel for you. Mm, that sounds, yeah, so wow. 
Okay. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. It is a, a pursuit that is far less um, academic than most of the stuff that I try and engage with in my everyday life so it's a nice form of escapism for me as well i would imagine yeah i would imagine and i mean you're a very talented couple i would assume because your your girlfriend is quite the quite the comic book artist yeah she is a, a an absolutely amazing artist i have a feeling she is downstairs right now hard at work on her next page which will be out tomorrow um you mentioned her earlier as well for those listeners who may not have heard that episode uh, her name is Lindsay little and she has a comic called oni girl which is available on webtoon canvas uh that's o-n-i-g-i-r-l uh releases pages weekly and i am so proud of her i think that the work she's doing is absolutely amazing so i heartily recommend you check that out yeah i i i second that that it's really good well stratton um thank you very much and uh have a lovely evening thank you so uh, much benjamin this was a a great pleasure i appreciate it no thank you all right have a nice night though bye-bye Bye.